Today we are continuing uh, our series that we started a few weeks back, which we've entitled Living the Mission. And uh, we have uh, communicated as our main theme of this fall as we do this series, simply this, if we're going to live the mission, we must first understand the mission. And so our goal is to unpack the mission of Jesus and all that he teaches us to know what that looks like for us. And so after laying a foundation of mission in the Old Testament, we then considered Luke chapter 4, where Jesus very clearly uh, stated his mission. And then last week, we looked at Jesus living that mission out in a practical way in John chapter 4, where we looked at the woman at the well. And what we concluded was living the mission is centered in having, or in loving rather, the broken, the confused, the hurting those needing forgiveness. Today, we're going to be considering the paralytic in Luke chapter 5 as we continue to see how Jesus lived the mission that he declared in Luke chapter 4. Jennifer and I had a really interesting experience a week ago. We were on our way to a wedding reception, and we had pulled into the, um, the area the conservation area where the reception was taking place, and we had never been there before, so we didn't know if this was a long and winding road or if we would know exactly where we were supposed to be. We were just making our way down. There was a car ahead of us, and we were just making our way through, and up on the right-hand side, I noticed that there was a lady that was dressed in a black top and black pants, and the car ahead of us stopped, and so my assumption was she was part of the catering team. And she was giving directions as to where we should park or what we were expected to do. And so the conversation with the car ahead of us, you know, 30 seconds maybe to a minute, and then the car moved on, and then it was our turn. And so we pulled up, and we put the window down, and, and all of a sudden, this woman started speaking very erratically. And so I'm thinking, oh, no, she's drunk, or she's stoned. <laughs> This is going to be an interruption because we've timed it. And if you know me, on time is a few minutes early. And so we've timed it perfectly. We're going to be there on time. And I'm thinking, I don't have time to deal with this. May I remind you that a few hours earlier, I had preached to you that love is the center of the mission. Just so you know, I'm as flawed as you. So I'm having a moment where I felt like this was a bit of an intrusion and that this was going to delay us. And you're, but then all of a sudden, I began to notice that there were little pieces of leaves and twigs on her shirt. And her hair was uh, disheveled and there was a, a black, her eye was black and blue. I know, I'm a man. It takes me a while to notice things. Her eye was swollen, and, it was, and there was blood running down her face. Yeah. And she's talking about her car, and so I thought, I, I need to get out and, and see if I can see anything. And so I walked over to the edge of the road, and down in the ravine, just above the top of the trees, I could see the roof of a Jeep, and the, a little bit of the red below, just a little bit. I don't know how in the world it got down there. It looked like a helicopter had dropped it. There was no evidence, but I come, came to the conclusion that She'd been involved in an accident. I know, not a lot gets past me, right? <laughs> She'd been involved in an accident. 
And so Jennifer immediately got on the call for 911 because this woman needed help. And so, you know, I, I sat her down and I thought, well, maybe I should keep her talking just to kind of keep her clear and, and try to find out a little bit more information. And so we just, we stayed with her and, and we just, you know, tried to encourage her until everyone started to arrive. And within a few minutes, police, firemen, you know, ambulances, every, everybody was there. And then shortly after arriving, they put her on the stretcher and they took her to the hospital and she was going to get the care uh, that she needed. Now, if you're wondering why the car ahead didn't stop, I refer you to the story of the Good Samaritan in Scripture. I don't know, other than that. But my point in sharing that with you today is that this woman needed help to get to the place that she needed to go to. She was injured. She was disoriented. She had obviously suffered some level of head trauma. To get, she needed help to get to the people who could help her. In fact, if none of us was, would be willing to stop, I don't know what would have happened to her because she was not able to get the help she needed for herself. She was hopeless. She was dependent on somebody else. The story of the paralytic that we're going to look at this morning demonstrates to us that living the mission will require coming alongside those who need help finding their way to Jesus, especially when it's inconvenient. And so let's look at this scripture together this morning. It says, one day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. Now, when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Today. The first thing I want us to consider is the context of this, understanding the context of the story. So Jesus is teaching inside a house. It's early in his ministry. And already he is garnering significant attention. The house is packed. And not only are the locals gathered, but we're told that there is a, a religious group that have gathered. There are, the Pharisees are there, but also the teachers of the law who have gathered from Galilee, from Judea, and also from Jerusalem, the capital. Now, this is the first time the Pharisees 
are actually introduced to us in the Gospel of Luke. Up until now, we've not heard or seen anything of them. Pharisees, historically, their role was to help Jews maintain the purity of their religion. They taught the people how to apply the law of Moses to everyday life. And so over time, because they wanted to be so helpful, they added a lot of their own rules to the rules of of Moses in order to uh, put stricter uh, you know, guidelines and boundaries around people's life. And over time, they became very rigid, imbalanced, legalistic, hypocritical, judgmental. And so they're present in this room. And they're there to observe. They're there to critique. They're there to determine if this Jesus is legitimate. And most likely, their primary purpose in being there is waiting for that moment when Jesus breaks the rules. And they're ready then to pounce. Now, Pharisees, if you read your Bible, New Testament closely, were primarily located in the rural country areas of Israel. If you follow the ministry of Jesus, you'll notice that when he reached Jerusalem near the end, the Pharisees are no longer mentioned or rarely mentioned, if at all. They drop off the scene and the priests and the elders and the teachers of the law, they now take over and they're the ones who actually, uh, you know, instigate the crucifixion of Jesus. On this day, there are local Pharisees, but also teachers of the law from Jerusalem. This is a powerful group. Now, as we discovered when we considered the mission of Jesus in Luke 4, his mission was a combination of words, teaching, deeds, the miraculous acts, and justice for those who needed social justice. And so we, we observe when looking at the ministry of Jesus, whenever he's in these teaching environments, that significant miracles take place. Jesus' teaching is more than sharing of information. It's a combination of truth and power. And so the paralytic who has been brought here, he's longing for a miracle because of his disease, but added to his physical need in his culture would have been a stigma. He would have been marginalized because of his health situation, because of his condition. And the reason for that is that there was a belief in his culture at the time that if there was something wrong with you, if you were sick, if you were disabled, if you were deformed in any way, that there must be sin in your life that caused that illness to happen. And so because people thought that, those who were sick, those who were disabled, were rejected, they were judged, and many of them actually lived in poverty because of the stigma attached to the fact that they were sick or disabled. Now, the uniqueness of this encounter is that the man needs the assistance of others if he is going to be successful in seeing his life changed by Jesus. He can't get there on his own. He needs someone to assist him. He needs someone to take him there. And we are told that there are some men who are compassionate towards the paralytic. They are willing to do what he needs, and we're told that they carried him on his mat to the house where Jesus was. They were hoping for a miracle for this man. And we are told, as we are reading the story by Luke, 
that the power of the Lord was present for him, Jesus, to heal the sick. Well, this is a significant statement because for those of us who are reading the story, at this moment in the story, we're starting to feel hope because, well, if the power of the Lord is there to heal, then, then this may be good for this man. This may end really well. It's important for us to understand what it means when Luke says the power of the Lord was present. The power of the Lord is terminology for the Holy Spirit. And so what Luke is telling us here is that the Holy Spirit, He, the Holy Spirit, is present within the teaching ministry of Jesus. The power of the Lord is there. Luke is telling us that it is the Holy Spirit that makes the miracles possible within the context of Jesus' ministry. Now, Luke regularly reminds us that Jesus' ministry is empowered by the Spirit over and over and over. And so, what we're reading here is not unusual. In fact, what we're reading here is the opposite of unusual because what we're reading is actually normal in the teaching environments of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. So, everything seems perfect to see the fulfillment of this life-changing miracle take place. But then there are obstacles. Despite the anticipation of the miracle, the story quickly changes with two significant hindrances. The first one is the crowd. When the men arrived with the paralytic, they found that the house was packed and they couldn't get in. The house was filled with three groups of people. There were people there who wanted a miracle. There were people there who wanted to see someone get a miracle. And there were those in there, because of who Luke tells us were there, they were there to critique the ministry of Jesus. Hmm. wonder if that pattern follows church life. Those who need, those who like to watch it being met, and those who just want to pass opinion. That's just for free. That's another sermon. It became evident quickly that getting through the crowd is going to be impossible. But these men are determined. And they're not only determined, but they're creative. And we're told that they're filled with faith. Now, houses in biblical times used the roof space. And there were stairs usually leading up to the roof. And so the men took the paralytic to the rooftop. And most roofs often were made of of tiles that were either clay or a, a combination of straw and clay together. And so these men removed a section of the tiles and they lowered the man into the crowd. I mean, you know, you just got to understand how my mind works. As I'm reading this, I'm envisioning in modern day, you know, it's like Cirque du Soleil meets Benny Hinn. You know what I'm saying? Like right in the middle of the preaching ministry, this man comes in ropes from the ceiling. I, that's just for free. I just, that's, my mind goes there. Now Jesus is impressed because he saw the faith of the men who were so determined to think outside the box to get this man to him. Now the word faith Jesus uses here in reference to these men simply means being convicted of truth that leads you to action. You believe something so strongly that you act in whatever way you can to carry it out. They believe so strongly that Jesus could make a difference in this man's life that they did whatever was needed to get him there. 
And so in this moment, as the man is being lowered in front of Jesus, it appears the obstacle is overcome until another obstacle is presented, the religious leaders. Jesus' response to the paralytic was not what the men who brought him, likely nor what the paralytic himself was expecting. Instead of healing the man in that moment, he looked at him and said, your sins are forgiven. Why would he say that? I believe there's a number of reasons. The first reason, I believe, is because prior to healing this man, I believe Jesus wanted to deal with the thinking of the people who thought that sickness and sin were tied together. And so, if people were going to link those two things together, Jesus is showing them, listen, I have authority over both these things. Secondly, He's elevating the primary purpose of the mission. And the primary purpose of the mission is restoring people and releasing them from their sin and their brokenness and redeeming them spiritually to God. So he's highlighting the number one priority and goal of mission. Thirdly, he's sending a message to the Pharisees and the religious leaders that he has godly authority. They don't speak, but we're told they're thinking to themselves, and, we're to- and this is what they're thinking. They're thinking, oh, this is blasphemy, because only God can forgive sins. Who's, this guy's gone too far. He's gone too far. Who does he think he is? And we're told that Jesus addresses what they're thinking. He knows what they're thinking, and he says, which is greater for me to say? Is it greater for me to say that your sins are forgiven, or is it greater for me to say that you're healed? Now, in reality, Both of them are easy to say, (laughs) and both of them, outside of the miraculous, are impossible to do. So either to say your sins are forgiven or, or, or you're healed, they're both difficult things. In fact, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. It'd be easier for me to to look at Pastor Mark and say, your sins are forgiven, than it would be for me to, to say you're healed of whatever that is that causes him to be the way he is. (laughs) But why? Why? Because there's no immediate evidence to prove when you say or disprove when sins are forgiven. There's not some tangible outward thing that you look to to know that it actually happened. But if you say, rise up and walk, unless the person rises up and walk, There's no tangible evidence that a miracle took place. And in fact, even if they did rise up and walk, you could do what they do in other places where they say, well, yes, he's healed, but Jesus did it with the power of Beelzebub, the enemy, Satan. And so the purpose of this moment for Jesus is to show that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he uses the term son of man when referring to himself. And in fact, he uses that title more than any other title when he references himself. And the interesting thing about this is it's a very flexible term. It can mean a number of things. In Daniel chapter 7, it talks about the one who appears before the ancient of days and is given the authority, the Messiah. So the son of man can be the Messiah. In Psalm 8.4, the Son of Man is a human being. In Ezekiel 2.1, the Son of Man is a prophet. And so Jesus uses it because it doesn't reveal who he is in fullness, but it does suggest who he is in the meantime. 
And so this discussion primarily shifts the focus now away from the man. He's there in the midst of them, and the whole focus is off of him, the one who the story is centrally focused on. Thirdly, and finally, we see the resolution. When all seems to be falling apart for the man, when it seems like his needs have been forgotten, Jesus turns to him and says, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. The man demonstrated trust in Jesus' authority. He didn't just lie there. By faith, he stood up immediately. He picked up his mat, and we're told that he went home praising God. I believe Jesus asked him to carry his mat to make a point. Like the woman at the well where the pot was symbolic of her whole old life, the mat was symbolic of his frailty. It was symbolic of his sickness, his brokenness, his hopelessness. What previously carried the man is now being carried by the man. There's been a reversal here. And healing not only changed the man's health, but it changed his status and his family life. And what I love about the deliverance and healing ministry of Jesus, knowing the culture he was ministering in, without fail when he performs a miracle, he sends the person back to their family, back to their home, back to normal life, because he knows that they've been rejected because of how they were. Jesus had linked the man's forgiveness and healing together, and by observing the healing, forgiveness is assumed. Watching a man walk away with the mat under his arm was a testimony to all those who were present that the man was physically and spiritually healed, and they gave praise to God. God was glorified through this act, and Jesus said, this is why I came. I came to glorify the Father. And it says the people in the room, even though they came to see a miracle, they were amazed. They were amazed. Why were they amazed? They said, because remarkable things were done. Things contrary to expectation, things that go on beyond possibility happened in that place, and they were amazed. Now, I want you to note the last word of this passage, and the last word is today. We have witnessed, we have seen remarkable things today. It's a connection back to Luke chapter 4. When Jesus read Isaiah's passage about the coming Messiah, and after he read the passage and he sat down, the first words out of his mouth were what? Today. Today, in this place, in this moment, right here, right now, all that you have been longing for and looking for has now been revealed to you today. Today, the prophecy is fulfilled before your eyes. The word today in this passage is linking the promise of what the mission would bring. When Jesus said, all of this comes today, and they go, we've seen remarkable things today. Today. He doesn't overpromise and then underdeliver. He does what he says he will do. Now, I want us to note 
that this account demonstrates Jesus' teaching, or is Jesus' ministry of, first of all, teaching. He's teaching in the house of healing as the man is healed and justice as a man receives the forgiveness of God and the healing of God and is restored back to society and back to his family through the grace of God. We see the whole mission of Jesus modeled in this encounter. So what does it mean for us? There are three observations I'd like to draw from this text. The first, help wanted. Folks, having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ is a personal, individual experience. I can't have it for you. You can't have it for me. It's between us and Jesus. Someone else can't make the decision for us. Our parents can't make it. Our spouses can't make it. Our friends can't make it. We and we alone are the only ones who have the, the opportunity to choose a relationship with Jesus. No one can make that decision for us. Neither can we put our spiritual hopes in the faith of someone else. Your spouse may be really spiritual. Your family, your mom, your dad, your family, your friend may be really, really close with God. You know they walk with God. They pray and they serve God and they love and live the mission. And they are just, you just know that, that they have a relationship with Jesus and you admire that and you respect that. But as wonderful as that is, you can't put your spiritual hopes in the faith of someone else. You just can't. It's got to be yours. Now, that being said, it is also true that statistically, most people who come to Jesus are assisted or brought by someone else. It's rare that you're sitting alone in the middle of a desert with nobody and nothing, and all of a sudden you feel inspired to give your life to Jesus. It happens, but it's not the most common. In this room this morning, those of us who would consider ourselves followers of Jesus were likely led, assisted, helped by someone else. And it's usually someone who's close to us. And so if we were to survey this room this morning, many of you would say it was your mom. Statistically, moms lead more kids to Jesus than anybody. It may be your mom. Maybe it's your dad. Maybe it was your brother or your sister. Maybe it was grandma or grandpa. Maybe it was a family member, an uncle, an aunt, the weird cousin no one wants to talk to at the dinner. Maybe it was your friend, your coworker. Maybe even the pastor had some influence. The point is, most of us in this room who say we're a follower of Jesus can think of someone who was instrumental in helping us come to Jesus. And so Jesus' model for building the kingdom is centered in what? Relational disciple-making. That's how he intended it to be. Coming to Jesus has always been intended to happen through the involvement of a follower of Jesus who is a part of a broader community of followers of Jesus. That's always been his model. And so if we are going to live the mission, we need to intentionally, 
and deliberately commit our, committing ourselves, commit ourselves to investing in the lives of those who need Jesus. We must intentionally, deliberately commit ourselves to pray for those who need Jesus, to actively engage with those who need Jesus, to build relationships and invest in building relationships with people who need Jesus. We need to help those who need Jesus with practical, tangible things. We need to encourage those who are on a journey towards Jesus, investing our time. Most people who are going to come to Jesus are going to need our help to get there. Help is wanted. Secondly, hindrances. Without a doubt, the path to Jesus is one that is filled with obstacles and hindrances. First of all, to begin, there's an enemy of our soul who will do whatever he can to keep us from finding Jesus. Don't think for a moment that the enemy doesn't want to do what he can to influence our thinking and our decisions and our, our behavior to keep us from finding Jesus. He'll do whatever he can. Another hindrance is the broken condition of humanity. People are suffering with deep-rooted sin in their lives. Pride. They've had so many failures in their lives. There's a sense of unworthiness that I, don't, I have failed so much, I have done so much, I'm not even worthy to come, and their un, sense of unworthiness keeps them from Jesus. They've hurt people so badly that they don't know how they can ever come to Jesus after hurting people that deeply. Or they've been hurt so deeply themselves that they don't know how to negotiate life and the pain and the hurts and the wounds that they have in terms of coming and giving it to Jesus. The broken condition of our lives hinder us from receiving the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of Jesus. A third hindrance is the fear. The fear of losing significant relationships is a hindrance. Often people get to the point where they would want to give their lives to Jesus. They want to serve Jesus. What you're saying makes sense. What you're, they're seeing, most importantly, in your life makes sense. They see you. They're observing you. They admire that in you. They admire your faith, and they wish they could have it. But then they, they, they start thinking about their family, and they say, you know what, I, I don't know how I go home and tell my parents or my spouse or my brother or my sister or my grandparents. You know, that I, I don't... This just wouldn't fly with them. I, I don't think I could. Or how about my friends? If I make this commitment to Jesus, I'm going I'm to lose all my friends. Or someone is really significant. You know, I'm dating this girl or I'm dating this guy. And, and if, I, if I start following Jesus, like that's over. I know it. And so we're afraid. It's a hindrance. What are we going to lose? Fourthly, the spiritual crowd can be an hindrance. Spiritual people can be a hindrance. We can. Because sometimes spiritual people are so caught up in themselves, so caught up in their, their longing for their own miracle, 
So caught up in wanting to be in the kinds of environments to observe the miracles in the lives of others that those who need Jesus get forgotten. They're crowding into the room, they're filling the spaces, but they're not thinking about that one who desperately needs Jesus who can't get in. And they're forgotten and they're neglected. And then when they do get in, sometimes the most spiritual people are the most legalistic and they impose so much on a new believer that they wither and they die. The point is this. In every life, there are a lot of hindrances. There are a lot of excuses. There are a lot of reasons why becoming a follower of Jesus is too difficult. It's too costly. It's too inconvenient. And our responsibility as followers of Jesus is to be so committed, so committed to believing That if this person that I work with, if this next door neighbor, if my son or my daughter, if this person down the street, if I could just help lead them to Jesus, I know it would radically change their lives. So committed to that, that we will walk with those who need Jesus and we'll help them navigate the obstacles patiently, with kindness and compassion, but not giving up easily, being like the men in the story, creative, determined, committed, full of faith, because this person is too important to not find their way to Jesus. And finally, hope. That word's thrown around a lot these days. When I use the word hope, I use it in terms of hope is the expectation that things will turn out positive in the future, despite how painful, difficult, disappointing, confusing, and hopeless things may be in our lives at this present time. That's hope. Hope is not dependent on experiencing positive change right now. Hope is rooted in having the confidence and faith that God is working in your best interest despite what might be happening to you and around you. God wants more for us than mere existence. I want to repeat that. God wants more for us than mere existence. He wants more for us than just getting by. He wants more for us than just struggling to stay and keep our heads above water. Anytime we come to Jesus, there needs to be a combination of faith and a willingness to act. We need to do what he's asking us to do, and we need to turn to him and ask him to truly be the Savior and Lord of our lives. We need to repent of our sins. We need to repent of the things that don't reflect his character and his word. And I'm talking to those who are followers and not followers, because repentance should be a daily part of our lives. Repentance means being sorry, but it also means asking for forgiveness, but it also means changing how we live, and it's not repentance unless all those things are happening. We need to start trusting Him with our lives, even when it's easier to try and do it ourselves. We need to base our lives and character on the example of His life and character and allow the Holy Spirit to change us, and then we will experience hope. Hope. 
Because living the mission includes these things for ourselves, but also includes helping others experience these things for themselves as well. In a world that is broken, in a world that is hurting, in a world that has lost its way, in a world that has bought into promises of happiness and found nothing but pain, there is a need for hope. And Jesus is that hope. He's that hope. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back. Folks, if we are willing to help others, if we're willing to not be deterred by the hindrances, we're going to help the broken, the hurting, and those needing forgiveness, the delusioned, the hopeless, find hope in Jesus. Living the mission will require coming alongside those who need help finding their way to Jesus. Like the woman who was experiencing head trauma in my story, I don't know what would have happened to her if one of us hadn't stopped. I don't want to think about it. Living the mission is going to require coming alongside of those who need help finding their way to where they need to be, which is to Jesus. And staying with them. Not giving up when there's hindrances and challenges, but helping them until they find hope. You know, we're here in this place, and as we conclude this service this morning, I can't help but want to say to you that I believe the power of the Lord is in this room. In fact, if we didn't believe that, why are we here? Why would we be here if we didn't believe that God by His Spirit is in this room? It would be a waste of our time. And so I want to conclude today by reminding us that we believe that the power of the Lord is present. And if the Holy Spirit is here in this place today, because we have lots of stories of when we knew that. But do we have a today story? Today. It's great that I can tell stories that happened in my parents and my grandparents' lives. Those are wonderful testimonies that define my, my legacy. But if I don't have those moments in my life, in my day, then what does it say about our relationship with Jesus? His presence and His power means that healing is possible and miracles are possible and freedom and bondage can be broken and salvation is possible and hope is possible. That we can leave this place and say, it was a remarkable day and it's not just because the music sounded good or the pastor got excited or I got to see someone I haven't seen in a while. We just walk out of here and just say, what a remarkable day. The, par- the power of the Lord was there and we saw what he did in the lives of people. That's got to be our hunger. Today is a remarkable day. Today. This church has a great history. I respect it. I appreciate it. We're building off of it. But today matters. Today. 
today, the day when things that seem impossible become possible because the Holy Spirit is here. So I'm going to invite you to stand this morning. And I know that church sometimes can be so structured that we can predict every little thing that's coming next. I know that. But today, why don't we just open our hearts and open our lives and just say, you know what? I'm just going to let God by His Spirit have access to my life today. Imagine what could happen in my life if God by His Spirit was to touch me and change me. We have lots of time to lunch. I mean, if you don't believe in the day of miracles, look how short I preach this morning. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come. If you want someone to pray with you this morning at this altar, but even if you don't come here, even if you want to just come here and seek the face of God by standing or kneeling, you're welcome to do it. But even in your seat, if you want to stay there, but just make this a moment where you just say, God, you know what? The word today is so important with you that you're not just the God of yesterday. Because I hear so many Christians, they only want to talk about yesterday and what's coming. That's it. They want to predict the future and glorify the past. But what about today? Jesus says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I want to invite the prayer team to come. Worship team, would you lead us? Won't you just ask God for something relevant, fresh, and renewing for you today?